Amen. Well, do turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel according to Matthew, and to Matthew chapter 25. Picking up where we left off last week, Matthew chapter 25, and we will be reading today verses 14 through 30. Would you stand with me as a sign of reverence for the reading of God's inspired, inerrant, and infallible word? This is the word of God. Let's give it our full attention. For it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to another one, and to each according to his ability. And then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and I hid your talent in the ground, but here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will be given, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The grass withers and its flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. You may be seated. Some 20 years ago, when I first became a Presbyterian... We started attending this wonderfully faithful church in La Jolla, California called New Life. It was a a PCA church. The pastor was a godly and faithful man. The congregation was filled with thoughtful and mature Christians. The worship was reverent 
and God-honoring as it should be. There was, there was nothing trivial or silly about the worship there. Uh, the, the worship was considered serious business as it should be, and as it is here. And although the congregation believed that it was a serious thing to come into the presence of the living God, and although they took worship seriously and they took God seriously, they did not take themselves too seriously. Uh, and that was never more evident than at our annual New Life Talent and No Talent show. Perhaps you have had an occasion to witness a talent show or maybe be a part of the audience. For the uninitiated, a talent show is, of course, just an occasion for people to demonstrate or perform some skill or ability that they have acquired. So, for example, at our New Life uh, talent show, I can remember we had people sing, uh, play instruments, perform magic tricks, my personal favorite was a couple of our young men, college roommates, who recited a series of haikus that they had written about each other. And uh, I discovered not only what a haiku was, but also that Presbyterians could actually have fun. And I appreciated that. Why am I talking about talent shows? It turns out that our English word talent which we associate with things like talent shows, which we associate with some personal skill or ability, is actually derived from this parable. If you look it up in the Oxford Dictionary, it will point you to this biblical parable as the etymological origin of our English word talent. This parable where the Lord tells us about a master who distributed talents to each of his servants and each according to their ability. Now, it's important that you understand, however, that when Jesus uses the word talent here, he is not talking about some natural uh, gifting or skill. Uh, he is very simply talking about money. A talent was a weight or a measurement of money. And yet our English linguistic fathers were on to something. They were on to something when they recognized that behind the figure of money, Jesus was speaking about something more. This is not just a a parable about how we use our financial gifts. God is, after all, the Father of lights from whom every good gift comes. And so whatever we have, uh, be it our time, our talents, our treasures, we have it from God as a stewardship of His grace. And that is really what this parable is about. It is about the stewardship that we have from God and about the way that we use the things that he has entrusted to us for his glory. And so today, as we reflect on this parable that Jesus tells, let me give you three points to sort of help direct your thinking through this passage. First, we're going to consider the delivery and the distribution 
to the servants as the master graciously apportions out his property, entrusting it to his servants. The distribution and delivery to the servants. Secondly, we're going to look at the duty and the dedication of the servants as the servants now take what has been given to them and they put it to use in service of their master, the duty and dedication of the servants. And then finally, we're going to consider the destruction and the decoration of the servants as the master returns and as he calls his servants to account for the things he has entrusted to them and he meets them by decorating them with either honor or destruction. And so today, uh, then, as we begin to dig into this, let me just remind you where we find ourselves in this gospel account. Uh, We are, of course, in that portion of Matthew's gospel that we refer to as the Olivet Discourse, uh, because Jesus, having abandoned now the temple and gone to the Mount of Olives, he's been teaching his disciples uh, not only about the destruction that is coming upon Jerusalem, but he's teaching them uh, about what things will be like on that day when he returns. And this parable is now the third in a series of three parables that Jesus tells his disciples about the way things will be on that day when he returns. A parable, you'll remember, is just a story. It's a story taken from the stuff of everyday life, Uh, but that is endowed with a deeper spiritual meaning. And so, for example, in each of these three parables, the one who is going and the one who is returning is a picture of Christ himself as he goes and as he returns. He is the master of the house who will come at an hour when he's not expected. He is the bridegroom who is going to come at an unexpected hour. And now he is the man who is going on a journey, but who is going to come again. And so let's consider then the first point here, the delivery and the distribution that this man makes to his servants. Verse 14 tells us, uh, it will be like, well, what will be like? Well, that day when he returns, it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To the one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability, and then he went away. As as we begin to consider this parable, I think there's, there's a few important things to say from the outset. Uh, The first is this, that I want you to just remember that these men are already the Lord's servants. If Christ is the man of the parable, the servants are his disciples. They are his church. They are those who confess his name and follow him. Uh, Jesus has told many parables. He's told parables about Israel. He's told parables about the world. This parable relates to his church, to his disciples. It's given to those who belong to him, uh, to those who have this established relationship with him as servants have to a master who know him. And this, this uh, association establishes certain expectations, doesn't it? 
There are expectations about this mutual relationship. And that's, that's the first thing. They don't become his servants because of their faithfulness. They are his servants. And therefore, they are expected to be faithful. Uh, that means that those who are the disciples of Christ, us, we are not only, when we are saved... We are not only saved from something, saved from sin, uh, saved from death, saved from hell. We are saved to something. We are saved from sin, but we are saved to service. We are bought with a price. We are no longer our own. We belong to the Lord as His servants. Think of the way that the apostles frequently referred to themselves as the bondservants of Christ Jesus or the servants of Christ for your sake. They feel themselves in service of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul puts it this way regarding all of us in the church. He says, He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sakes died and was raised. When we are brought into union with Christ, when we are made alive in the Spirit, right? we are no longer to live for ourselves, but to live for him. Our salvation in Christ establishes this relationship where, where our lives are given over as servants and stewards of Christ. And the second thing I want you to note about this parable is note how the master treats his servants. Note the confidence that he puts in them and in their abilities as he entrusts his property to them. Uh, Paul uh, reflects this same kind of language when he speaks of the stewardship that has been given to him. And, and really, that's what this is. That's the nature of this entrusting. It is a stewardship. That is to say, he is giving them the responsibility to manage his affairs in his absence. He's entrusting them with the things that belong to him. But they always belong to him. The servants are honored. They are enriched by the gifts. But the master is in no way impoverished. All of these things belong to the master. And the third thing I want you to note here in this delivery and distribution of the talents to the servants is both the generosity and the discernment of the master. I mentioned earlier that a talent was a measure of money, but it was a significant measure of money. This is not a small amount. If we saw in another parable, the parable of the workers in the field, right, uh, who receive a denarii for their work, uh, a denarius was the equivalent of one day's wage. A talent is the equivalent of a lifetime of wages. It's not what you would earn in one day. It's what the common man, if he worked his entire life, could be expected to earn a talent. And so you see, even the servant who receives the one talent, we might look at this parable and he goes, well, he only got one talent. 
I'll gladly take one whole lifetime's wages in one moment. This one who receives one talent is entrusted with an extraordinary amount of money. The master is generous in entrusting his affairs to his servants. But he's also very wise. He's discerning. He gives to each one according to his ability. The master knows his servants. He knows what they are capable. He knows their ability. He knows what he can reasonably expect from them. And so even as he distributes the gifts, he doesn't distribute them equally. But he distributes them wisely. And he distributes them discerningly. And I think that is important for us to consider as the church. It's easy for us to look at the gifts of others and to compare ourselves and to think, wow, they have so many more gifts than I do. Right? It's easy to, to look at a Sinclair Ferguson right? and to think, wow, look at all of those gifts. But to whom much is given, much is expected. And and we need to remember that the Lord has given gifts to all of us. We are not to be envious of one another's gifts. We are to glory in the gifts that God has given. And we are to understand that the gifts that he has given us, he expects us to be faithful in using for his glory. And that, that brings us to our next point here about the duty and the dedication of the servants. What did the servants do? with what they had been given. Look at verses 16 through 17. We read that he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. Notice how these first two servants respond. They go at once to work. The the Greek text uses the word immediately. And it puts that word right at the the front of the sentence for emphasis. Immediately they went out. You get the sense that there's sort of an excitement, right? This one servant has been given the wages of five lifetimes to use for his master. The other is given the, the wages of two lifetimes to use for his master. Never have servants been entrusted with so much. And so they're excited and they immediately go out. And what do they do? They get to work. The ESV translates it that they traded. The Greek text simply uses the word work. They they went to work. And they won by their work more talents for their master. The point here is, is pretty simple. That they are actively engaged in the work of their master. They aren't sitting on the sidelines. They are throwing themselves into the endeavor. One of the vows that we make when we become members of the OPC is that we promise to participate in the life and service of this church. Uh, Often when I'm speaking with the kids about that vow, I ask them, what does it mean to participate? If you're participating in a game, are you sitting on the sidelines? Or are you actively engaged? Are you involved? 
When you participate in church, are you participating? Are you joining in the song? Are you making melody with your heart? Are you you praying with the prayers? Are you listening actively to the sermon? It's participation. It's engagement, right? These, These fellows are engaged. They are throwing themselves into it. Now, I think it should be obvious, though, that all of their activity depends entirely on the gift of the master, doesn't it? They don't have these things of their own. They're not just wealthy servants. All of their active engagement, their ability to use these things, those are all the gifts of the grace of their master. They are working not with what is theirs, but what has been entrusted to them. And that is true of us as well. We work, we are engaged with the things that the Lord has given to us. We are called to take those gifts and get to work in loving and serving and delighting to do the Lord's will, but never ever for a moment forgetting that whatever we have, we have by grace. Do not forget that. What do we have that we have not received? That's the question that Nathaniel was asking us as he read from Jeremiah, right? What do you have to boast in? The world makes its boast in all kinds of things. We boast in the Lord because apart from the Lord, we have nothing. But in the Lord, we have everything. And a beautiful thing about this is that we can trust that as we labor and as we work, the Lord is going to bless his gifts. He's going to multiply them. Uh, As we employ these gifts and graces... They will bear fruit unto him. Five talents will become ten. Two talents will become four. And in the end, we will boast in the Lord. But notice the contrast. The the contrast that you feel immediately with the third servant. What does he do? Verse 18 tells us that he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. If the first two servants are actively engaging their master's gifts and using them and putting them to work, the third servant is not using them. He is not engaging them. He is passively hiding them away. The the original text makes it even more plain. Instead of moving out, this servant moves away. Instead of going to work, this servant moves digs a hole. Instead of winning talents, this servant is hiding talents. According to Jeremiah, there's actually some rabbinic attestation that burying money was the safest course of action, right? There's this sense of precaution. There's this sense that I shouldn't take any risks here. If the first two servants are hardworking and industrious, the last servant is, according to the master, lazy and fearful. He's slothful. It's not just that he's precautious. The master says, you're lazy. And you're afraid. But notice the self-justification that he gives. In verses 24 and 25, he says, 
Master, I, I know you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed, so I was afraid. And I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. He has the audacity in his self-justification to blame his laziness on his presumed knowledge of the master and his greatness. It, it, isn't that just like Adam in the garden? When God comes to Adam and he says, what have you done? And what, what is Adam's self-justifying response? Well, the woman that you gave me, she gave me to eat. It's not just the woman's fault, it's your fault. You gave her to me. It's the same response here. We, we can justify our sin in all kinds of ways. But God would not stand for it in the garden, and he's not going to stand for it here. And that brings us to our final point, that the decoration and the destruction of the servants. Verse 19 tells us that after a long time, the master of the servants came and settled accounts with them. And I just want to point out here that we see these same two principles at work that we have seen all along. It's after a long time. There is a delay. Jesus is preparing his disciples for a delay before his coming. Right? That principle of the delay, just like the, the bridegroom is delayed in coming, just like the master of the house was delayed in coming. Even so, it seems to us that Jesus is a long time coming. But he's not slow in coming. Not as many count slowness. Peter reminds us. Uh, if he delays, it's because he's patient. So there's this principle of the delay, but there's with the principle of the delay, the need to be ready. The delay should not make us unwatchful, but watchful. The delay should not make us uh, unready, but ready. If anything, it should encourage us to be all the more watchful and ready because we do not know at the day or the hour that our Lord is coming. So here it is as well. After a long time, the master of the servants came, and with his coming, there is an accounting. When he returns, that day will be a day of accounting. And he comes to the first two servants. And the two servants are ready to meet him. They're eager to meet him. The first servant says, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. The second servant says the same thing. You delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. They present the master back with his gifts and with what they have gained. And listen to the master's response. He says the exact same thing to both of them. Doesn't matter whether it was five talents or two talents. He says, well done. Good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He commends them for their faithfulness. He doesn't actually commend them for the amount of their return. He doesn't say anything about the amount of the return. He commends them 
because they were actively engaged in what he put into their care. Well done, good and faithful servant. And then he adds, you've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. If five talents, if five lifetimes of wages is a little, what is much in the Lord's economy? He decorates their faithfulness with praise and their devotion with honor. And then as as icing on the cake, he says, enter into the joy of your master. That reference to joy, I think, is is almost certainly, uh, would almost certainly have been interpreted by the disciples and by the Jewish people as the joy of the messianic banquet. A joy marked not just by the festivities, but by the presence of the Messiah himself. To be in the presence of the Lord is fullness of joy. What does God desire of us? Well, he desires of us faithfulness with the gifts he's given. They're all his gifts, but he calls us to use them. And then, marvelously, he is pleased to crown our faithfulness with more gifts. He's pleased to crown his grace to us with more gifts. What gifts has he given us? There's no greater gift than that final gift of entering into the joy of the master in whose presence there's fullness of joy. But what about the lazy servant? The lazy servant comes with his self-justifying excuses and what does the master say? He He pierces right through it all, right? He he cuts right through the facade. I don't think the master agrees with his servant's caricature of him at all. Uh, He says, okay, you know me to be that way? Do you know me, you wicked and slothful servant? You know that I reap where I've not sown and gather where I've scattered no seed? Fine. You, You should have at least invested my money with the bankers so that at my coming I would have received interest with what was my own. I think the point is he's telling the servant, you you actually didn't know me at all. If you had known me, if you had known what I desired, at the very least, you would have gained some interest that would have been better than you're wasting my gifts, than you're not employing them, than you're not using them. And then he turns to the other servants and he says, so take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. From the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast that worthless servant into the outer darkness into that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What is Jesus saying here? Is is Jesus sort of saying we should take from the rich or from the poor and give it to the rich? Take from those who don't have anything and give it to those who already have all kinds of things? Take from the, the guy who's got little and give it to the guy who's got a lot? It misses the point entirely, doesn't it? In the first place, the servant is entrusted He was entrusted with a lifetime's worth of money. It's not that he didn't have anything at his disposal. 
But it's that rather than use it, he buried it. And in the second place, what is being taken and what is being received is the stewardship. It's the responsibility over the things that actually belong to the master in the first place. What is given to the one with ten talents is more opportunities for action and for service. Have you ever noticed that? That the more that you get involved in the life and the ministry of the church and serving others and serving your neighbors, the more opportunities you find for service? There's a principle there. Unfortunately, what that first or that third servant loses is that opportunity. The Lord takes away all opportunity. The Lord takes away the opportunity because he never used, made use of the abilities he was given in the first place. And then more than that, he punishes him for being a useless servant. The ESV translates this as worthless. And while that's not wrong, I I don't think it's as precise as our English word useless. That's really the point. He made no use of the gifts that were given him. And so, as uh, the scripture says, he's cast into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What does weeping and gnashing of teeth convey? Think of someone grinding their teeth and weeping. This is, this is the Bible's picture of intense regret. That is what is being communicated. That loss of opportunity, that loss of the joy of God's blessing will be marked by outer darkness away from the light of his presence, and the agony of regret. And that becomes one of the Bible's principal metaphors for what we call hell, isn't it? That eternal torment of regret. The the parable is sobering. It holds out both a profound promise on the one hand, but it also holds out a profound warning to those who would make excuses for their laziness. God has richly blessed us with many gifts and graces. Not the least of these is His own Son, faithful in every way, with all that God entrusted to Him. And more than that, Christ Himself has poured out on His church so many gifts a share of his talents. And yet all of God's gifts are given to us as stewards to be used for his glory. We don't all have an equal share, but we all have gifts. We all have abilities. We have all been given according to our ability to use them for his glory. Now that includes the obvious things that we call talents, right? our natural and and spiritual gifts. But we should not exclude the thing that we call money. Bill Hobbs, a pastor in our presbytery, taught me the alliteration of time, talents, and treasures. 
I think that's a really useful way of sort of summing up the gifts that the Lord gives categorically. Our time, our talents, our treasures, these things which are to be used in the stewardship of God's kingdom. And so I would just ask you, I would ask you, how are you using His gifts? And some of us have more time than others. Some of us have more treasures than others. Some of us have more natural abilities than others. The question is not so much what kind of return are you making. The question is, are you being faithful with the things that you have been given? Are you engaging yourself in the service of Christ? It's easy to make excuses. But we've been bought with a price. We've been saved not only from sin, but we've been saved to service. A service that Christ Himself empowers graciously and then is pleased to graciously reward. Now let me say that while it's easy to make excuses, excuses, it's also easy to get hung up on the question, am I doing enough? It's easy to get hung up on the question, have I buried my talents in the ground? It's easy to get hung up on the degree of our faithfulness. But let me remind you where I began. It is not your faithfulness that makes you a servant. It is because you have been made a servant that you are called to be faithful. It's not your faithfulness that makes you a servant. It's Christ's faithfulness that makes you a servant. Christ who is faithful over all of God's house as a son. Ours is a response to that grace. We are called to labor. And your faithfulness will always be lacking. It just will. But I think our confession of faith is so wise when it speaks about good works. I want to read you just this portion from our confession. In its, its chapter on good works, it tells us this, that notwithstanding the weakness and imperfection of our good works, the persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works are also accepted in Him. Not as though they were in this life holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in God's sight, but that He, looking upon them in His Son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. God is pleased to accept these gifts that we bring because we bring them in gratitude and we bring them in service to Christ. And so, beloved, I would just encourage you as we begin this new year to reflect on this parable, to reflect on the gifts and the graces that God has given you and to labor to hear your Savior say those words to you. Well done. Good and faithful servant. I gave you a little. You were faithful. Enter into the joy of your master. Amen? Amen. Lord, 
we long to enter into the joy of that glorious messianic banquet. We, we long to be hearing your words of commendation. Well done. But Lord, we know that all of our works, our best works even, are as filthy rags, but you are pleased to accept them in Christ. You are pleased to receive that which is imperfect and, and uh, blameworthy because it's brought in faith, because it is the exercise of the graces and the gifts that you have given us. And Lord, we pray that you would help us then as we reflect on the many things that you have entrusted us with, that this is no small thing, and that we should labor and delight and go out and work and employ these gifts in your service, in your kingdom. Lord, we pray that we would not labor for the things that are perishing, but that we would labor for the things that are eternal. And so we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And as you're seated, we are seated today, of course, at the Lord's table. And this is yet another way in which he encourages our faith, uh, in which he reminds us of the many gifts that he has given and poured out upon us. Because, of course, the bread and the wine represent the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. They represent that greatest gift of all. Uh, And as we come and receive them today by faith, we receive Christ and all of his blessings and benefits to us. Uh, And so we are called to come in faith and know that this meal will encourage us and strengthen us to be about the work of the Lord, to be employing his gifts uh, that he has given for uh, his kingdom. Uh, That does not mean, however, that this meal is for everyone. This meal belongs to those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And how do you know that you belong to Christ? How do you know that you are one of his servants? Well, first, have you professed your faith in Christ? Uh, Have you uh, been united to him? We're clearly figuring something out here in the parking lot. Sorry, I'm a bit distracted. Um, Have you professed your faith in Christ? That's the first thing, right? Are you following him as his disciple? Uh, Have you been baptized? Do you have that sign, that covenant sign, uh, which speaks of your being incorporated into his family, his name put upon you? Uh, And are you a member of a church where the gospel is being faithfully proclaimed? Uh, And are you living in the gospel? Are you trusting in Christ? And are you repenting of your sins? If those things are true of you, then you're invited to come to this meal and encouraged to come because this meal is God's means of grace to you, to support you in the gifts that he has given. And so even as we come today, let's ask that the Lord would take these ordinary ordinary things and set them apart for this special use. Lord, as we come to your table as so many servants uh, invited to this banqueting table, Lord, we pray Uh, that you would take now these ordinary elements of bread and wine and set them apart for this holy use. So that now as we receive them in faith, 
uh, Lord, that we might receive Christ himself and all of his spiritual blessings for our growth and grace and the employment of the gifts that you have given. Until that day, Lord, when you come and call us to account and we return to you what you have given plus those things that you are pleased to accept in Christ. And so we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.